please turn with me in your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. And I want you to think back to when you were a child. For many of us, life was pretty good. Food magically appeared on the table. In a way, electricity was free. And for a lot of us, um, we, didn't, we didn't have to do everything in life. Whenever you grow up, you have a lot more responsibility. I remember my dad would occasionally shake his head and mutter, you have it made. You know that? And he might have been right. But regardless, there is at least one universal phrase that escapes the lips of every child. At one point or another, we all make this same blanket statement. We all say, we mumble the words, I can't wait until I grow up. Have a, I mean, isn't that true? Haven't every single one of us once said that when we, were, when we were young, when we were little? As children, we want all the privileges of being an adult without all the responsibility. But time, struggle, and experience has a way of correcting that outlook, doesn't it? Might I suggest that the Christian life is no different. When we are born again, we have it pretty good. We have a Heavenly Father who loves us, the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to sustain us, and a merciful Savior who lived a perfect life only to become sin for us in order to make our salvation happen. When we are born again, we have it pretty good. But we are still babies. And like children... We want all the privileges of being an adult without any of the responsibility. But time, struggle, and experience has a way of correcting that outlook, even for our spiritual lives, doesn't it? Well, friends, this morning's passage is all about one thing, and that's spiritual maturity, growing up in Christ. It's about putting on your spiritual big boy pants and getting to work in your Christian life. Now, I realize that we are all across the board in our individual walk with the Lord. Some of you are great giants of the faith, while others are still spiritual thumbsuckers. And that's okay. That's fine. This message is still for all of us this morning. Because there are times when, and I'm just going to be perfectly candid and honest with you, there are times when I mess up. There are times when I mess things up terribly, when I say something I shouldn't have said and I kick myself, or I bang my head against the steering wheel on the way home, or I fail to do something I should have done. And you know what I typically say in those instances afterwards? I normally mutter to myself, Man, I can't wait until I grow up. It's true. We all need Christ, and we all need to be more like him, more and more and more, regardless of where we are this morning in our personal walk with him. So let's begin by reading the text. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 5. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins." As we began our study of Second Peter a few weeks ago, we immediately looked at the right faith, saving faith. We saw that we have received this great and common faith through Christ. And that is a tremendous truth, isn't it? It's a wonderful truth that saving faith is not something we earn. It's not something that we decide. But even our trust in Christ comes to us as a precious gift from God. We simply receive it. Right out of the gate, Peter starts his death row epistle strong. He knows he's about to die, and he wants to cram as much as he can. 
theologically into a short economy of words. So he does that. He packs this opening to his final letter tight. And then we looked at verses 2 and 3. We saw that the benefits that we have as believers are tied to our knowledge of Christ. And that this isn't just any old generic knowledge. The word that is used here in both verses 2 and 3 is epinosis. This is a deep knowledge, a personal knowledge that carries the thrust of coming to know. So this knowledge refers to the overwhelming personal experience of coming to know Christ. And it is through that deep personal epinosis where grace and peace can be multiplied to us. And it's also where we have already received everything that we need for life and godliness. So how does that happen? It happens by being in this book, by loving God's word. Because the better we know him, the better we love him. And we can't afford to sacrifice the head in the name of the heart. To grow in godliness, you need to have both. And then last week, Pastor Bill did an excellent job of pulling the essentials out of the first three verses and introducing us to Christ's precious and magnificent promises, not the least of which is our partaking of the divine nature. What a tremendous truth that is. And the implications of that truth are huge. The verse goes on to say that even though sinful lust and desire has gotten us into this mess and polluted the world, we have escaped the ultimate corruption that sin produces. We've escaped that because God has given us the gift of his magnificent promises and applied them to us. What a tremendous verse. What a tremendous passage. What a tremendous God. That is such a beautiful and wonderful thing that the same holy and transcendent Lord of all who says, I will share my glory with no man has decided to share his divine nature with us. That's incredible. Now, I do need to point out real quickly that Peter is not saying that we take on the essence of his deity or become part of God himself, because that would be blasphemous. That's not what Pastor Bill said last week either. But just as Adam was made in the image of God, we too, by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, are made in an even deeper sense into the image of the Most High. God is love, so we become love. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. God is truth, so we become true. We see things for what they really are. We love the good and we hate the evil. God is good, so he makes us good by his grace, so that we become the pure in heart that will someday see God. And I bring all that up not only to follow in Peter's footsteps, as it were, and stir you up by way of reminder this morning, but I bring that up because the very next phrase, the beginning of our text that we're going to look at today, starts with the words, now for this very reason also. Now for this very reason also. You see, it all ties together. This tremendous gift of saving faith is the greatest blessing anyone could ever receive. Its benefits are marvelous. And because all these advantages have been given to you. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence to your faith, here's what you need to do. Here's the next step. The title of this morning's message is Due Diligence, Qualities for Spiritual Maturity. You might remember from a couple weeks ago that verse 3 marks the beginning of a Holy Spirit-inspired sermon that carries all the way through verse 11. Well, today we are going to look at the heart of that sermon. Peter has already started the sermon at Strong by reminding us that we have We have already previously received everything that we need for life and godliness, to live godly lives. He did that in verses 3 and 4. Now he simply tells us to do it. Just do it. Live a godly life. So that's what this morning's message is all about. 
Godly living. He begins by telling us what to do, followed by why it's important. He provides both the means and the motivation for pursuing godliness and growing spiritually mature. And that's often, I, I'm, I tell you, I'm so thankful whenever Scripture does this. I am so, so thankful when I'm not just told this is how it is, but I'm told this is what you do now in light of how it is. Many of us ask the question, how do we grow deeper? How do we become stronger in our walk with the Lord? You want to know how to grow deeper? You want to know how to walk with the Lord? Well, here is one of many excellent passages designed to show you how. Here's how. So let's begin with the basics for diligent godliness. That's number one in your outline. The basics for diligent godliness. Again, I'll read verses 5 through 7. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. When you receive a gift, whatever the occasion, there is always an appropriate response. Always. If the gift comes from a close friend, you might give that person a hug or write them a thank you note. I remember when I was a little guy, I received a board game one time at a Christmas party from a family member. It was a great game, Operation. I loved it. But unfortunately, I already owned it. And my response to receiving that gift was less than favorable. As you can probably imagine, this selfish little boy's thankless reaction was extremely embarrassing for both my parents. And I learned a very valuable and painful lesson that night when I got home, that whenever you receive a gift, there is always an appropriate response. There's always an appropriate response. Well, for weeks now, we have been looking at the greatest gift that any of us could ever receive. Any of us. Saving faith. And friends, the appropriate response to such a gift is diligence. It's diligence. Diligence in applying and supplying these seven necessary qualities for growth and spiritual maturity. I love what Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, had to say about this. He puts it all into perspective by saying... Grace saves no man to make him like a log of wood or a block of stone. Grace makes man active. God has been diligently at work in you. Now you must diligently work together with him. Isn't that good? And aren't you thankful that God doesn't save men to be blocks of wood or to be blocks of stone? I am so, so thankful that God saves men to be diligent. Saving faith is the foundation for a lifetime of diligent work. And we, we need to put sweat into it. We need to work. We need to apply all diligence. We need to make every effort. We have to do that if we are going to grow into greater Christ-likeness and maturity. But to do that, the first quality that we need to look at, the first quality here in our list is moral excellence. Moral excellence. Diligently apply and supply morally, moral excellence. He says, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. This is the same word that we saw a couple weeks ago in verse 3, when Peter says that Christ called us by his own glory and excellence. It is the same word that literally means virtue. To the Greeks, it was a lofty term that referred to courageous acts of heroism. When I was a kid, one of my favorite books was King Arthur and His Knights. And according to medieval folklore, only the bravest, noblest, and most virtuous knights could hope to earn a seat around Arthur's famous round table. And once they had, they were required to live by a code. There was an expectation that was placed upon them. Each knight was required to keep their conduct in check, 
to live in light of their position and privilege. Otherwise, they wouldn't be fit to sit around the king's table. They lived and died according to that cause, according to a heroic sense of virtue. And that's very similar to what we see here in this word. Because likewise, our king has given us the call to live in light of our position and privilege. And he has given us something far greater than an excellent cause. Something far more superior to a noble cause for us to all live up to. He has given us himself. And he is the standard of moral excellence. He is the goal. And he has saved us to become more like him. So what exactly is moral excellence? Moral excellence, simply defined in this case, is the best of the good. It's the best of the good. Paul uses the word in Philippians 4.8 when he says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. We need to think about these things. We need to dwell on them. We need to purposefully devote time to them and not stop there. We need to live them. This isn't a subtle suggestion or a nice thought or gentle consideration. This is a command. The Holy Spirit makes that perfectly clear all throughout the scriptures. Friends, the same God who has given you everything that you have, everything that you need, the same God demands that you be morally excellent. He doesn't say think about it. He says dwell on it and do it. That's the first necessary quality here in our list, moral excellence. And by the way, each of these basic qualities are in one way expressed or connected with his predecessor. They build on each other as time goes on. They're all connected. R.C.H. Linsky refers to this list as Peter's golden chain of Christian virtues. He says, there are seven jewels and all of them are fastened to faith. Others have referred to this list as the ladder of faith or the staircase of faith, where each rung or each step leads to the next. So the next step or jewel or link in this golden chain is knowledge. Knowledge. Peter says, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge. Now this is not epinosis. This is not the word that we've looked at thus far in our study of Second Peter. Because this is the, the common, more generic word, gnosis. And that shouldn't surprise us because this isn't the deep, personal, coming-to-know sort of knowledge that we have seen in the letter thus far. This knowledge isn't, isn't linked to the source of your salvation in that sense or the granting of the gift of faith itself. Rather, it's tied in the, in the link of this golden chain. It's tied to your sanctification. This knowledge, it refers to a proper understanding of things as they are. A proper understanding of things as they are. It is understanding, wisdom, and discernment. That's what this knowledge is. You can't do something you know nothing about. And how do you know? How do you know what is true? How do you know what is right, what is pure, what is lovely, what is of good repute, what is excellent and worthy of praise? If all you have is the wickedness of your own heart as a compass, you don't know. It is better for God to speak about these things than us anyway, right? I mean, look around you. The world is very adept at calling that which is evil good and that which is good evil. The world right now would take so many of the views that we personally hold in this room because we are biblically informed by the word of truth itself and they would say to themselves, no, that's evil, that's wrong, that's hateful, it's unloving, it's bigoted, it's not right. And you guys, you you narrow-minded Christians, you are the ones who are to blame for so much of the world's problems right now. You're the ones that are holding us back from progressively moving forward and becoming a better society. (sighs) Nothing could be farther from the truth. Left to the wickedness of our own hearts, 
That's where we find ourselves. But we have to be biblically informed. We have to know what is the mind of God. What are his loves? What are his hates? What is right? What is wrong? Because left to ourselves, guess what? We make the wrong choices. So again, church family, I can't stress it enough. Love your Bible. Get into the word for yourself. This is where the knowledge comes from. It doesn't come from man. It doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from Pastor Bill. It doesn't come from anyone else. True knowledge of God comes from his word. We have already stressed the importance of really getting to know Christ and not just about him through his word. But we must also ask ourselves the question, what does God want us to do? What does he want us to do? If I am to live a life that pleases him, I need to know what pleases him. So I need to learn. I need to grow in understanding, wisdom, and discernment. And that happens through the transforming truth of his powerful word. That's knowledge. Knowledge. Quality number three here in our list is self-control. Self-control, he says, and in your knowledge, supplies self-control. The term literally means holding oneself in. The Greek athletes would use this term to describe self-discipline and self-restraint. They would often abstain from fatty foods, alcoholic beverages, and even sexual activity in order to focus all their strength and concentration on training for their sport. It's an admirable thing, self-control, but let's be honest. Self-control is one of those qualities that we love to see in other people, right? Self-control is normally not at the top of anybody's list. When it comes to qualities we all know that we should have, but maybe we don't work very hard towards achieving. In a list like this, we want to pass this one by, don't we? Or at least read over it a little quicker than the rest. But honestly, self-control is extremely, extremely important. Self-control is so important. According to Acts 24, self-control was at the very heart of Paul's proclamation of the truth. Acts 24.25 says that he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. It is a fruit of the Spirit and one of the evidences for saving faith. And it certainly belongs here in our list of godly qualities right after knowledge. It belongs right here in this list, but particularly right where it's placed, right after knowledge. Why? Well, think about it. Why should you apply self-control to your knowledge? Why is that important? Well, I can tell you from experience, many well-intentioned Christians just don't. And from my personal experience, it is easy to become intoxicated with the truth and not in a good way. Without self-control, God's truth can go straight to your head. And there are few things more dangerous than a drunk Christian behind the wheel of God's word. It's an amazing thing when people lose all self-control in the name of truth. And here's how it happens. Typically, we discover a precious doctrine of scripture. And it's true. It's fresh. It's new to us. And we want to share that great truth with everyone, don't we? Why wouldn't we? It's exciting. And I remember in my early 20s, whenever I discovered that God knows everything and has sovereign control of everything, and that my coming to Christ wasn't a surprise to him, and that Christ came to actually save, not just make salvation possible for a bunch of sinners to somehow find and grope around and and eventually land on the cross in the dark... I can honestly say that at that time, I knew nothing about theological systems. I knew nothing about the doctrines of grace. I knew nothing about Reformed theology. I knew nothing, okay? All I had was the Bible. And as I was reading the book of Romans on my own, I started to come to these conclusions. And I wanted to share these wonderful truths with everyone. And you can imagine my excitement when I discovered that I wasn't a heretic. That was huge for me because I'd never heard these things before. Well, unfortunately, my excitement gave way 
to a lack of self-control. And I started doing damage to those around me. I would argue and scream, and I would point at my Bible, and I would, I would tell precious friends of mine, I would say, what's wrong with you? What do you mean you don't believe in predestination? That is exactly what the Bible says right here. Predestination. I know you can read, so what's wrong with you? It was awful. And I'm just thankful that none of you knew me back then. But I'm also thankful that the Holy Spirit worked on my heart. I had to apologize to a lot of friends that I'd hurt with my mishandling of my knowledge. And I started praying instead. I started looking for opportunities to share those truths with my brothers and sisters in Christ instead of hacking them to pieces with it. And guess what? God healed those friendships. And for some of them even, it was remarkable. They would come back to me years later and they would say things like, you know what? I was reading Ephesians 1 the other day. It does sound a lot like predestination. I'm like, yes, thank you, Lord. Because God will use his word to reveal truth in his timing and in his way. And when we forget that, when we throw out all self-control, when we throw it out the window, more often than not, we just get in the way. Moral excellence needs knowledge. And knowledge needs self-control. It needs it. Well, we're almost halfway through the chain. Next, he says, and in your self-control, supply perseverance. Perseverance. This is a very common word. It appears 32 times in the New Testament. It means patient endurance or to keep on keeping on. Perseverance is not giving in to trials, to temptations, to hard times, to sin. Steadfastness and patient endurance work hand in hand with moral excellence that is knowledgeable and self-controlled. But please, don't think of perseverance as just holding on and getting through a tough time. Because perseverance is not a static word. It's not about weathering the storm or waiting passively with a deep sigh of resignation. That's not the point of perseverance. I really like how William Barclay puts it. He wrote, quote, Perseverance does not simply accept and endure. There is always a forward look in it. It is said of Jesus that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. That is perseverance, Christian steadfastness. It is the courageous acceptance of everything that life can do to us and the transmuting of even the worst event into another step on the upward way. End quote. That's fantastic. Trials come in all shapes and sizes, and we need to actively and patiently endure them for the joy that is set before us, for the ultimate hope of glory. Well, some of you might remember the old hymn, Be Strong. I won't sing it for you here now, just in case someone might be visiting this morning, and I would very much like for you to come back. But the lyrics go something like this. Be strong. We are not here to play, to dream, to drift. We have hard work to do and loads to lift. Shun not the struggle. Face it. Tis God's gift. Be strong. Say not the days are evil. Who's to blame? And fold the hands and acquiesce, O shame. Stand up, speak out, and bravely, in God's name, be strong. It matters not how deep entrenched the wrong, how hard the battle goes, the day how long. Faint not, fight on. Tomorrow comes the song. Be strong, be strong, be strong. You want to see this thing through to the very end and you want to end strong? Then persevere. That's number four. He says, supply moral excellence and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance. Number five, and in your perseverance, godliness. Godliness. We first saw this quality in verse three again, when Peter says that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So immediately, we should remember, when we come to it here in our list, 
That godliness is not the same. It's not some high and lofty goal. It's not unachievable. When when we are called to be godly, God calls us to be godly because we have everything that we need to be godly. That's a part of the package. He's already granted that to us. We have everything that we need. So you might remember whenever we looked at verse 3 that this truth, it can be positive or negative depending on how you look at it. It's positive in the sense that you don't earn it and that you have been given this gift. Everything that you need up front, that's a huge blessing. But it's also negative in the sense that you now have no excuse for not living a godly life. And since God has already so graciously provided everything that we need, it's a slap in the face for us to never use such a powerful gift. The quality that we're looking at here in godliness, it's all about respect. It's all about respect. Growth in godliness displays a very practical awareness of God in everyday life. In other words, you care about what God thinks, and that affects your decisions. You care about what others might think of him when they look at you, and that affects your decisions. You care about becoming more like him, and that affects your decisions. Paul encouraged Timothy to lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And we should make every effort to diligently pursue a quiet and godly life as well. Another commentator says, while God gives us the ability to become godly, it is our responsibility to use the power he has made available to us and actually work at becoming people who please God in every phase of life. It's true. Godliness is a gift, but it doesn't happen on its own. We have to actually work at it. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes perseverance. It takes a heroic sense of things. We have to put ourselves in the place of diligent work. You want to please God? You want to be like him? Then purposefully add godliness to your courageous stand of perseverance in practicing self-control and proper restraint to your understanding and knowledge of God in order to apply those truths towards living a morally excellent life. Wow, what a mouthful, right? But that's the message of verses 5 through 6. I'll say it again. Diligently add godliness to your courageous stand of perseverance in practicing self-control and proper restraint to your understanding and knowledge of God in order to apply those truths towards living a morally excellent life. What a command. What a command. Well, so far we have been steadily climbing the ladder of faith, onward and upward. And the direction has been vertical thus far. Well, in verse 7, the emphasis becomes horizontal. He says, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. The sixth quality, brotherly kindness. I have to be honest with you. This is one of those rare times when I'm disappointed with both the NASB and the ESV renderings of this word. In my opinion, they both do a lousy job. Brotherly kindness, in my opinion, sounds too delicate. Sounds like etiquette. Who doesn't want to be kind? Brotherly kindness. The ESV prefers brotherly affection, and yeah, okay, but that still misses the mark. Because the word that we see here in the text is Philadelphia. This is Philadelphia. Brotherly love. And brotherly love is deeper than a nice word or a long hug. So kindness and affection, they fall short. I don't think the residents of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania would appreciate it very much if we called their city the city of brotherly kindness or the city of brotherly affection. Probably not. Brotherly love means more, and it demands more from us. Philadelphia is really a beautiful word. It refers to a strong feeling of love because we're family. 
Why do we love each other? Because we are born of the same womb, by the same spirit of the same family. And like a healthy family, we need to cultivate a personal relationship of warmth and love with each other. This invites the blessing of God and strengthens our body, and and it gives us the opportunity to give back more of the love that we have received. But again, this requires work. Romans 12.10 says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. And can I just say that I believe that this is one of the greatest strengths of our church. I honestly believe that. We're a family and we love each other. When my wife and I first visited, that much was obvious. FBC is a precious family of believers who love God's word and love each other. And I can't tell you how thankful I am for that reality, to be a part of a loving church. So even as I was preparing this message and pouring over God's word this week and thinking about this particular quality, this trait, this virtue that we as believers are supposed to put on and and embrace and diligently work and strive towards. As I was doing that this week, I couldn't help but, in a way, relate to Paul, the Apostle Paul, and how he must have felt when addressing brotherly love to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Listen to this. He says, and this is my heart for, for you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Beloved, like Paul, I am thankful for you. And like Paul, I urge you, you're strong in brotherly love, but do it more. Do it more and more. Love one another more because we are born of the same womb, by the same spirit, of the same family. That's number six, brotherly love. And then finally, the highest rung of the ladder, the final step on the staircase, the last link in the chain that we see here is love. Love, agape. It should not surprise us to see love conclude the list. After all, love is the crown of Christian virtues. Colossians 3.14 says, And above all these, put on love. Why? Because it binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is not only the last and greatest quality of our list, it is the glue that holds the rest of them together. For what good are any of these things without love? One commentator writes, The word which Christ chose to summarize the entire law calls upon us, heart, mind, soul, and body, to set our affections on God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to reflect the love of Christ to the world around us. Love is certainly a part of the divine nature, and it is the mark, the ultimate mark, of a true Christian. So these are the basics for diligent godliness. Moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly love, and love. All of them are necessary qualities for becoming more like Christ. They make up the means for maturity. Well, now let's look at the motivation for maturity, both good and bad, beginning in verse 8, with the benefits of diligent godliness. The benefits of diligent godliness. Look at verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Quick show of hands. Who here wants to be a useless and unfruitful person? Anyone? Nobody. Good. That's good. That's good. Of course not. That's like saying, who wants to run a race and finish last? Or who wants to grow a beautiful garden of weeds? Why would a Christian ever want to be useless or unproductive? The Bible says that you won't be. So long as you have these qualities and they are increasing in your life. In other words, a B minus in moral excellence shouldn't be good enough to you. 
A C plus in self-control isn't good enough. To the Christian, even a solid A minus in brotherly love shouldn't be enough. We shouldn't be content with anything less than an A plus in each one of these necessary qualities. Now you might say, Hans, 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 hold on. Now you're asking for the impossible. You're just being unrealistic. And I would say, yeah, sure, that's true. So what? I mean, look, none of us have a perfect score. None of us have arrived yet. That's true. And we won't truly become like him until we see him. But in affirming that truth, you now have two options on how you react to it. Here and now, you can say, if I shoot for the stars, I'll never get there, so why try? That's one reaction. And you can be content to stay down here where you are with little usefulness and little fruitfulness. Or you can say, I won't get there until I get there, but I have to keep working at it because I won't grow if I'm content to stay where I am. Friends, shoot for the stars. Go for the A pluses in every one of these qualities. Diligently apply these virtues to your faith so there is no question that they are yours and that they are increasing. Because we all have room for improvement, and the more we have, the more effective we will be. It's a simple fact. I know that I quoted him once already this morning, but I can't help myself. Charles Spurgeon, my favorite dead preacher. I love what he had to say here. He says, as the man is, so is his work. If we would do better, we must be better. How, how simple, practical, and profound is that statement? As the man is, so is his work. If we would do better, we must be better. The benefits of diligent godliness are a useful and productive life. To be useful and productive, both physical and spiritually. Because he says, in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there again we see that precious word, epinosis. It is that true, deep, personal, coming to know knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ that vertical relationship of inner transformation and increasing godliness, it is in that epinosis that our horizontal relationships become fruitful. Listen, the world is already full of useless Christians, people who are more than willing to let Jesus die on an agonizing cross for their sins, but refuse to break a sweat when it comes to obeying his word. The church is full of that. There's a convicting lyric in an old Keith Green song, of all things, where he pounds on the piano and he asks, how can you be so dead when you've been so well fed? Jesus rose from the grave and you, you can't even get out of bed. Beloved, don't be useless. Don't be satisfied with average. Shoot for the stars, go for the A, break a sweat, and diligently supply these qualities to your daily walk of faith. I pray that they would be yours and ever increasing until the day you see him, your hope of glory. Well, that's the good news. Believe it or not, that's the good news. You don't have to be unproductive. You don't have to be unfruitful. You can be a productive Christian. We can call that positive motivation, being useful for the kingdom of God and producing much fruit in your Christian walk. But verse 9, there the motivation is not so positive, is it? Rather, it carries a dire warning. There we see the blindness of diligent godlessness. The blindness of diligent godlessness. Look at verse 9. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Throughout the Bible, blindness is used repeatedly to describe the natural tendency of those living in darkness to not have God in their thoughts. They don't think about him. They don't care about him. That's blindness, spiritual blindness. Here Peter turns the mirror around and he directs its reflection back to the Christian. He says, you might not be an unbeliever, but if you act like one, you will be no more useful than one. You say, wait a minute, 
I could never become like that. And what he says here at the end of the verse, I could never forget the purification of my former sins. Are you telling me that I can forget my salvation? I could never do that. Well, what did David say in Psalm 103? He said, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. So think back to the time when you first realized that God had forgiven you of your sin. Can you remember what it did for you then? Did joy fill your heart? Did peace cover your conscience? Did hope rise in your soul? Now let me ask you this. Is that increasing in your life? Is it increasing? Or do you live as one who has forgotten that God has forgiven you and that Christ has made you clean? Here it is, decision time. Because one of these two verses applies to everyone in this room. You are either a verse 8 kind of gal or a verse 9 kind of guy. Either these qualities are yours and increasing or these qualities are not yours and you're lacking. It really isn't a middle ground. You're either beneficial or blind. You're either fruitful or you're forgetful. The question is, which are you? And more importantly, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do? Well, because it all flows together, let's take a quick peek at the beginning of next week's text. And I won't preach it. You'll have to come back next Sunday and hear Pastor Bill do that. But let's at least read the verse, verse 10, because it all flows together. He says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, the things that we've just looked at this morning, you will never stumble. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I'm predicting that we will hear a powerful message next week about being even more diligent in these necessary qualities that we have looked at today and how you can be assured of your salvation. Well, your spiritual maturity matters to God, and it also matters to us. How many of you are familiar with the last half of Colossians 1.27? Anyone? Okay, Pastor Bill is. I'll give you a hint. It's on the screen behind me every Sunday. Okay. (laughs) It's a wonderful verse. It's a great verse. I wonder how many of you know what the next verse after it says? Again, keeping in this idea of things flowing together. He says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then Colossians 1.28, Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That is the battle cry for the Apostle Paul's ministry and any faithful ministry everywhere. Him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And Paul finishes the chapter by saying, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Friends, let me just say that Pastor Bill and I do not want to see you suffer. We don't want to see you suffer. We want you to enjoy life. We want you to see good days. We certainly do. But you are sadly mistaken if you think that is the goal of our ministry. Because our goal is to proclaim Christ, to publicly portray him crucified as Paul did for the Galatians, to declare his greatness and his glory so you grow in your love and your epinosis of him. Our goal is also to warn you when sin is crouching at the door, when your feet are in danger of slipping off the precipice, when we see you reaching for a stick and it's really a snake. That's our job. We're trying to warn you of those things. Our goal is to teach you to rightly divide the word of truth, to mine the gold of scripture and present its treasures for you to enjoy and appreciate. But in order to do that, we must first dive into the word of life for ourselves. So we toil and struggle with all of Christ's energy that he powerfully works within us. And we pray that we would do that with all wisdom. Wisdom that quite frankly, in and of ourselves, we just don't have. 
So we fall on the wisdom found in this book. We do this for the privilege and joy of seeing you grow and presenting you mature in Christ. That is the ultimate goal. It is the goal of preaching. It is the goal of biblical counseling. It is the goal of discipleship. It's the goal of ministry. Your maturity matters. It matters. And it doesn't happen overnight. And too often it's too easy for us to think that we are farther along than we actually are. But I can't encourage you enough. Think long and hard about Peter's little sermon at the beginning of this final letter. Revisit these verses. Meditate on these truths this week. Do it. Think about these basic qualities for godliness throughout your day at work or when you're at home with the family. Diligently look for opportunities to practice them. Don't just let life happen. Supply them to your faith. You don't want to be ineffective. You don't want to be unproductive, short-sighted, and blind. And we don't want that for you either. We want to see you grow in your maturity and in your walk with the Lord. Christ has already done so much for us. So much for us. Now, for this very reason also, let's continue to grow in him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again so much just for the truth found in your word. Thank you for giving us this word. Lord, I am so, so grateful that you do not save us to be logs of wood or blocks of stone. Lord, you have called us to be active. You have called us to diligently work and to supply these things to our faith, to to apply them in our daily walk with you. Lord, I pray that I pray that better habits would be formed, that good habits, godly habits would be formed in our lives as we continue to meditate on these truths and as we come across passages of scripture like the ones that we looked at this morning that just lay it out so so plainly for us and tells us, okay, you've been given this great gift of saving faith. And everything that you need has been supplied to you. Now, in light of that truth, for this very reason also, here is what you need to do. Thank you, Lord, for making that clear. Thank you for saving us, for the goal of maturing us and making us more and more like you. Lord, we know that the benefits are great. Every person in this room wants to be productive. Every person in this room wants to be fruitful. Lord, I pray that you would honor that desire, that you would remind us, even throughout the week and throughout the rest of our days, that that godliness matters. Maturity matters. And this is your goal. This is your desire for us. Lord, again, thank you so much. Your benefits are incredible. Lord, this is a wonderful and a marvelous thing that you have that you have put before us today. I pray that we would remember your word and that we would be transformed by it. Give us, give us the heart that grows in our love and our knowledge of you. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be softened as we go throughout our week, that we would continually think about you and that those thoughts would govern our decisions. Lord, we love you so much and we give you so much praise and we just are over, overwhelmingly thankful for all that you've done and all that you continue to do for each and every one of us. In your name, amen.